All right, take your Bibles. And this morning, you need to have a Bible. You should have a Bible every morning you come to church. But this morning, you need to have a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available back at the door. We also have these awesome smart apps that are all over the place. And so you can navigate to your favorite Bible version, and you can open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That is where we're going to be. And this morning, we are going to be answering the question, why devotions? Why devotions? So I think at first you need to kind of define what devotions are, right? Um, <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of different names for them. There's quiet time. Uh, there's my, my private time with God. There is God and I time, uh, which I was told this week is very bad grammar. I was not aware of that, but so it's God and me time. It just sounds funny. Devotions are a regular and repeated time of reading, thinking through, studying, meditating on, and memorizing God's Word. Devotions, as we're defining them, are a regular and repeated time of reading, thinking through, studying, meditating on, and memorizing God's Word. Now, today is kind of a special day. Because it's raining. Now, you all know why you're, you're, you're uh, anxious about what happens after this, or you're anxious because you were just reminded that today is kind of a special day. You should be anxious if that's the first that has come to mind. I'm going to ask this morning that all of our moms stand. If you're a mom, would you please stand where you are? <laughs> yes, we should give them a hand. Before you sit, Mother's Day is filled with emotion. A lot of reasons. Mother's Day is filled with emotion because of the joy that comes with being a mom, the joy that comes from having an amazing mom, the sorrow that comes from not being a mom, the sorrow that comes from missing mom, the sorrow that comes from missing one of your children. That there's very few days in the calendar that carry such significance and such weightiness. And that brings such a wide range of emotions. So this morning, whether you're standing or you're not, what I want you to know is this. God knows you, loves you, has provided for you in ways that you can't even begin to understand. He has seen every tear, and he's laughed along with you at every time of laughter. He is aware of what emotion you are going through right now. And what I want to say is to all of you, thank you. Thank you for being persistent. Thank you for being the stereotypical mom and for being the not-so-traditional mom. Thank you for being women who want to be known by God and want to know Him. Thank you for sharing your sorrow with us. As a church, we wouldn't be who we are without moms like you 
who show us how to mother. Thank you. Let's recognize them. You can have a seat. Thank you. So, so as we're talking about devotions, how many of you had mom tell you you needed to do your devotions? How many of you had mom show you how to do devotions? How many of you have had mom call you and say, you're not doing your devotions, are you? I can tell. Okay, so, so, so when it comes to devotions, we, we talk a big game about it. We talk about how very important it is, and, and yet oftentimes we don't even understand what it is. And so to honor mom today, we're going to talk about something that I think she wants you to understand, and it's this. Know God. Know God. And there's no way to know God outside of his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Paul says this to Timothy. Actually, I'll go back to verse 10 just to give us a little context. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, it says this, but you, Timothy, have followed my teaching, talking about Paul, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. You also, along with all the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, those persecutions that I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That has nothing to do with the message for today. But please don't overlook that verse. Don't act shocked when you are persecuted for your faith. (laughs) It's promised. It's going to happen. Verse 13, evil people and imposters will become worse. They'll be deceiving. They'll be being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from the infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." So what Paul is doing, he's writing to Timothy from prison. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to continue on the same path that you have been on. And, and, and what I want you to do is remember those things that your mom, Eunice, and your grandmom, Lois, have taught you from infancy. They have been expounding the scriptures to you. They've been opening up the scriptures with you. And they've read the scriptures to you. And they've given you the scriptures. I want you to continue in that process. And the reason is this. Not because it's a good tra- uh, tradition. Not because mom has begged you to do it. Not because mom has berated you into doing it. But because of this, because all scripture is inspired by God. Inspired, that means God breathed. It doesn't mean inspired like a beautiful musical performance inspires us, or or I feel like I can now take on the world because of some wonderful words that somebody shared, so I am so inspired to go. It doesn't mean that. It means, and the NIV actually translates this way, and I think it's a better translation of the word, breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is his very word. Now this verse in particular does not speak about how that happens, but it focuses just on the source of scripture. However, what I want to do in about, oh man, two and a half minutes if possible, it ain't going to happen, is do a quick seminary course for you and throw some information at you about the Bible. 
because some of you may not know this. So here's a, a few things about the Bible and how we received the Bible and what inspiration actually is. The Bible is written by human authors. Those human authors run the gamut of their, backs, uh, their, um, their, their lifestyles, their backgrounds, all those things. It's, you've got kings, you've got fishermen, you've got peasants, you've got poets, You've got a doctor, you've got scholars, you have a philosopher. I mean, so they, it would be, it would be like a, a group of us from Uniontown Bible Church sitting down to write a book, and we've got uh, NSA people, even though we don't know they're NSA people, we just think they are. We have farmers, we have moms, we have dads, we have single adults, we've got teenagers, we've got young people, we have teachers, uh, we have salesmen, we have uh, this whole gamut, and we were to sit down and write a book, imagine how different each chapter would look. Well, that's what we have in Scripture. Those are the human authors. The books of the Bible actually cover a number of things, like the history. They, they cover law. Uh, there's some personal letters in there. There's sermons. There's songs. There's, there's love songs and love letters. There's stories. There's, there's letters that are written to entire churches. And, and so as you think about Scripture and think about the human authors and the, what they've written, when you see this word inspiration or God breathed, we get a lot of false notions about what that means. And actually today, in today's culture, there are a number of different teachings about what that means. So let me tell you what inspiration is not to start. Inspiration is not God and human beings collaborating on a work. It's not human beings sitting down and writing out a letter and then submitting it to God who is like the great divine editor. It's not God-given man ideas and, and man going, I think that's a good idea, and man putting it into words. It's not God dictating to man. It, it's, it's not that the Bible becomes the Word of God when I sit down and read it and I become inspired or I find spiritual meaning in it. It's, it's not filled with just religious insights of ancient sages. That's not the inspiration of Scripture. Inspiration of Scripture is that people who were providentially prepared by God, motivated and carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke and wrote according to their own personalities and circumstances in such a way that their words are the very words of God. That's called divine inspiration. God worked in concert with human authors who, who, who as God carried them along, perfectly recorded his words. It's important to recognize this. We believe the Bible teaches verbal and plenary inspiration. Verbal means every word. There isn't one word that's a throwaway word in Scripture. Plenary means the entirety of God's word. You can't go through and pick which pieces you think are God's word and, and which pieces aren't. Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously did that with his, his razor blade. He sat down and he cut out all the miracles found in the New Testament because he couldn't wrap his head around how a miracle could possibly have happened. And so when he was done, voila, this is now the word of God because I've removed the parts that make me uncomfortable. You start doing that, you no longer have the word of God. You've got the word that makes you feel comfortable. So as you... Look at these things, you understand that we have the very details and the exact words written and recorded for us in Scripture, and those are the very Word of God, the words of God. So that leads us to this next question. Can we trust the Bibles that you're using this morning? Can you trust that those Bibles are actually the Word of God? I mean, obviously, this wasn't written last week, so, so can you have confidence that this is a faithful and accurate translation of God's Word? So... Um, we don't have original copies of the Scripture. 
And so that can be one of the things that people will attack. Well, you don't have original copies, and that's fine. But we don't make that argument for the works of Plato, not Plato, Plato, Homer, Caesar, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. We don't, we don't make any of those arguments. We don't have any of their originals either. And get this, we only have about 10 copies of each of those. And those 10 copies, the, the closest to the original written date is 1,000 years. So, so go back 1,000 years. What year is it? 29. Okay, so <laughs> I had to think about that. Like, seriously, that was weird. Go back to the year 1019. An event happens. Somebody writes it down. Fast forward 1,000 years. That's the oldest copy, the closest to the origination date that we actually have of the works of Plato. Humor. <laughs> Humor. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm a little out of sorts this morning. <laughs> I thought I'd mess up Plato, not humor. All right, Plato, Homer, there we go, and Caesar. But the, the, the same, uh, let me jump into this. The same could be said about the Old Testament um, about 40 years ago. About 40 years ago, we were in the same boat. We, we had copies of Old Testament manuscripts that were written in 9000 AD. Now, that's old. I, I feel safe to say that that's old. I'm not going to offend anybody in here, right? You, you, weren't, you weren't born in, nine, in, in, in 900 AD, I'm sorry. Man, I said 9,000, didn't I? I should just go home. <laughs> well, buckle up. <laughs> See where this thing goes. <laughs> oh, the oldest copy, that's why you're, I thought I heard a murmur after I said that. I'm like, we have some skeptics here. I'm going to preach hard now. <laughs> 900 AD. Ah, the oldest copy of the Old Testament we have is 900 AD, which is still old. A lot older than 9,000 AD. 900 AD. And uh, that's way later than the actual originals were written. And so what would happen is you'd look at it, and, and there were some questions. There were some questions. I mean, is this accurate? 900 AD, that's, that's almost 2,000 years from the date of origination. I mean, how, how accurate can those be? But then in 1947, this amazing thing happened. The young boy, a shepherd uh, in an area called Qumran, and he had a rock, because all young boys, when they're shepherding, do fun things. So he has a rock, and he chucks it into the caves. And he just keeps doing that. Until one, he chucks into a cave and he hears glass shatter. Well, and it's not like he's throwing them around houses. So as they climb up and look, what they find is what is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those Dead Sea Scrolls were a thousand years older than the oldest Old Testament manuscript that we had at that point. What was interesting is, is they had a full copy of Isaiah chapter 53 in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they took the, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah 53 and they compared it to the Isaiah 53 we had, which was a thousand years difference between the two. And out of, I wrote this down to make sure I didn't mess it up, out of 166 words found in Isaiah 53, there's one word that is different. And that word is actually a word that is inferred in the text, it's just somebody actually wrote it in. So there's no difference. They compared all of the other manuscripts, all of the other differences, if any, were really just in spelling. An extra conjunction or two were thrown in, but none of the differences changed the original meaning of the text. For the New Testament, it's completely different. For the New Testament, we have over 14,000 ancient copies, and we have fragments from, from copies of manuscripts that were within 100 years of the original being written. We have seven copies of Homer's Iliad. And people are like, that is definitely Homer's work. But wait, wait. We have 14,000 of the New Testament. 
And yet people will challenge if we can be sure that it's the same. Get this, the Bible is written by over 40 different human authors over a period of time of about 15 centuries. Any differences that are found in Scripture as you compare texts are really about things like names, numbers, and spelling. But even in those discrepancies, they're so minute, they don't change anything about the integrity of Scripture. So as you sit and you hold this on your lap, what you need to know is this is his word. It reveals his nature. It reveals his character. It's a faithful, inerrant, perfect declaration of who God is. So if that's his word and it faithfully declares who God is, we need to know it. And we need to know it well. Did you know that the average American household has four Bibles in it? I know you're all counting right now. However, the average American doesn't have a clue what any of those Bibles say. And that's why, that's why you can hear things and people latch on to them and they're ridiculous and they're like, oh, that's in the Bible. Well, no, it's not. So, so um, God wants you to have your best life now. No, he doesn't. Because if this is your best life, I feel horrible for you. Because there's one that's coming that's far greater. That ain't in scripture anywhere. God does not want you to think more highly of yourself. Scripture constantly tells us to think less of ourselves. Never does it tell us to think more highly of ourselves. I know, mom, I'm sorry, I'm going to betray you. Cleanliness is not next to godliness. That's not from the Bible. That's not God. That's mom. God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh, yes, he will. (laughs) That's fundamentally contrary to Scripture. He'll never give you something you can't escape. He'll never give you something that he can't carry you through. But he will give you more than you can handle. God helps those who help themselves. Definitely not God. That's the, that's the exact opposite of everything that Scripture teaches. The whole fundamental message of the gospel is we were sinners and unable to help ourselves, and so God stepped in and did it for us. So as a people of God who say his word is perfect and complete and is a revelation of who God is, we really do know very little about it. And that's because we haven't spent the time digging into it. You hold in your hands or on your lap or on the floor in front of you or the chair next to you, wherever it is right now. The words of God translated into your native tongue. Have you ever been amazed by that? The creator of the universe breathed out a book. And we can know him and understand him a little more and have access that is unshakably true and infinitely valuable, infinitely valuable. Do you treasure, love, read, meditate on, memorize the word of God? Frank, I don't know how to. Sweet. Let me help you. Step one, get a Bible. 
Good place to start, right? You can use yours. If you don't have a Bible, I'm, I say this every week. I'm waiting for you guys to take me up on it. Steal the Bibles from the back of the room. And again, if you see one you like in your neighbor's chair, when they're not looking, slip it in a purse and don't say anything. Skin. If, if your conscience won't allow you to do that, um, and you don't want to steal one of our Bibles, then by all means, just, just grab one of us. We have plenty of Bibles here. It's kind of what we do. So we're happy to give you a Bible and take it home with it. Or uh, let me encourage you on your smart device, you can even do this now um, if you want. Don't get distracted. You can go to uversion.com. Uversion is probably the primary, and it is absolutely, in my opinion, the best Bible app that is out there. It has over 13,000 Bible translations and over 15, uh, 1,900 languages. So if you feel like reading the Bible in Portuguese today, that's the place to go. Uh, it's got, I believe it has uh, right around 100 English translations. So you can go on there and you can download that app, and now you have a Bible in front of you. Second step, after you get a Bible, make the time to read it and study it. So contrary to popular belief, there is no magic in studying God's Word in the morning. You can study it in the evening. Morning, evening, it really doesn't matter when. Consistency matters. That's going to help you develop it as a habit. What needs to happen is this. You need to make it a priority. I don't have the time to do it. That's not true. Listen, my intent is not to guilt anybody into this. Um, We were talking this week as a staff. There is obligation to study in God's word, but there's also a love for God that leads you to study God's word. And it needs to be both. So, so I don't want to guilt you into it, but I do need to point this out. It's not that you don't have time. You make the time for the things that are a priority for you. The average American household watches, hold on to your seats, 71 hours of television in two weeks. It explains a lot about America right now, but 71 hours of television in two weeks. Do you know that if you read the Bible for all 71 hours, you'd read the entire Bible? Entire thing. Cover to cover. It's not that you don't have time. It's that it's not a priority for you. So first, find a Bible. Two, make the time. Three, find a plan and follow it. There's countless plans out there. Again, if you go to YouVersion, you can find a Bible reading plan for almost any situation. You click on it, and then it reminds you every morning. You can continue to read through it. You can read through the Bible in a year. You can read through Proverbs in a year. You can read chronologically. I'm reading through chronologically right now. I'm in the life of David. Actually, it's kind of a cool plan, the chronological thing, because I get to read what's going on in David's life, and then it fast-forwards me into the Psalms for the Psalms that he was writing during that period of time. It's actually kind of fascinating. But it doesn't matter what plan you follow. If you you don't use it, it's pointless. So let me encourage you to do this. If you are not currently reading and studying the Bible, let me give you the plan for the next 30 days. You ready? Read one chapter of the Bible a day. One. Start in Matthew chapter one. Read one chapter of the Bible a day. Just one. And if you start in Matthew, and you do it five days a week, you'll read the entire New Testament in a year. Maybe you do this. Print out, there's all these cool little charts. Print out a colorful chart that has all the chapters of the Bible listed out. So it's like the book of Matthew, it's got 28 chapters, and Mark, it's got 16, and it does all those things. And then go through, as you read, check it off. And watch how much you're reading of God's Word. Just don't overcomplicate it. 
Read. And when you read, focus on the passages that capture your attention. Focus on the passages that even capture your imagination. You know this about me. I like to think it's a sanctified imagination, but I have a very uh, active imagination when I, when I do anything, actually. Uh, but when I read Scripture, I like to visualize it as it's happening. So, so I'll share, so this is out of my, my own personal devotional time. So uh, today it was reading about, or yesterday it was reading about how, how David is just being treated terribly and, and being treated poorly. I have a mark here. So, so then he writes Psalm 69. Actually, this, this verse stood out to me. Um, it's it's, it's kind of interesting. Those who hate me without cause are more nor- numerous than the hairs of my head. I'm doing pretty well, I guess. Um, <laughs> so that stood out to me. That's cool this morning. But it's interesting, as horrible as things are going in his life, he's making these comments, and he says this in verse 8 of Psalm 69, I've become a stranger to my brothers, a foreigner to my mother's sons, because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And so David's mourning the fact that his friends and his family have just turned their back on him, and they hate him, and he's, he's got one priority and one vision and one focus, and that's to pursue God and him alone. And they hate him for it. And, 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 and what this stood out to me is this, Verse 13, but as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. Even David found that hard to put up with. And so as you capture one of those thoughts, meditate on it. Let it continue to work over in your mind. I think meditation gets a bad rap today because back in the day we associate it with the New Age movement where you empty yourself. That's not what meditation on Scripture is. Meditating on Scripture is actually filling yourself full of God's Word and chewing on it and turning it and looking at it from every possible angle, continuing to, to, to love the Lord with your entire mind, and it takes work. And then after you're done meditating, then memorize some of it. Scripture memory is, is really important. Here's, a, here's another uh, resource, um, BibleMemory.com. Uh, they also have an app <clears throat> that uh, helps you um, as you try to memorize Scripture. They also have an app for kids, which is fantastic. And, and so I'd encourage you to take you, make use of the, the, the tool there, but the idea of memorizing Scripture really comes from Psalm 119, verse 11, is the best picture of it. Your word have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against you. See, what happens is when you store God's Word in your mind, the Holy Spirit can bring it to mind when you need it most. So those Scripture memory programs are out there, and they are quite helpful. For, for time's sake, let me, let me just jump back to this so I can get back to the Scripture here. Um, just know this. There's, there's, no, um, <laughs> there's no secret sauce. There's no mystery. There's no microwave. There's no fast track because the goal in devotions isn't to read it faster than anybody else, to know more than anybody else, to memorize more verses than anyone else. The goal of doing your personal devotions is to know Him, to know Him, and then the transformation that occurs in your life as you get to know Him better. I mean, you're not going to master it in a day, you're not going to master it in a week, You're not going to master it in a month. You're not going to master it in a year because it's difficult in places. And there's mornings, I'm telling you, or evenings when you read, where you sit down and you read your chapter for the day, and it's not profound, and it's not emotional. But that's okay because Scripture doesn't always bring the fireworks. Instead, it's more like a wave crashing on the rocks. It just constantly hits with consistency. And after time, the sharp edges on those rocks are finally worn away. So why is it so important that we spend time in devotions? What value is there? Okay, go back to our text. Chapter 3, verse 14. 
As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that it's important for us to spend time in God's Word is because the scripture is what brings wisdom for salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. The scripture is what points us to Christ. Now, here's an interesting tidbit. Timothy didn't have the New Testament. He only had the Old Testament. So how is it possible that he read the Old Testament and found out he needed a Savior, and that Savior's name was Jesus Christ? John chapter 5, Jesus actually answers that with the, the Jewish people who are angry at him because he just healed somebody on the Sabbath. Jesus says to them, you have searched the Old Testament over and over and over again, looking for eternal life. And they point to me. Those Old Testament scriptures point to me. And here I am standing in front of you, the one who can give you eternal life and you reject me. So it's common saying the Old Testament points to him. Or you get the story in Luke chapter 24 after the resurrection where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and they don't understand who it is. He's not wearing a name tag, so they don't think it's Jesus. And they're walking, and Jesus begins to expound to them, starting in Moses and going all the way through the prophets, how every story in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So how is it possible that that Timothy came to know Jesus Christ through the study of the Old Testament scriptures, it's because the Old Testament has a hero, and his name is Jesus. And that's all those stories are pointing to. Let me continue now. Verse 16, scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for teaching. The Word of God teaches us about how God designed the creation to work together. The Old Testament and New Testament work together to teach us how man is fallen It gives us the foundational need of a sacrifice and the the total inability of mankind to be at peace with God because of their good deeds. It's profitable for teaching because it lays out for us the reality that apart from a substitute, a perfect substitute, then we're lost. But then it closes the loop and it names our substitute, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So, so it's profitable for teaching those things. It's profitable for rebuking us, for convicting us, like a, like a surgeon with a scalpel that tells us what they found and, and, and when they cut you open. And, and that, that rebuking can be personal. It can be um, the conviction of sin in our lives, but it can also be doctrinal. The Holy Spirit can, can use the Word of God to place His heavy finger on our chest and say, right there, you need to repent of that. You, you need to leave that false teaching You need to repent of that sin. It's it's right there. That's the rebuking for correction. I think too often when we think about God, we hear don't, 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 right? This is dumb, but for some reason people laugh. Don't, the the saying in college was, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Now, dumbest thing I've ever heard or said, and yet people always think it's funny. But there was, I mean, they meant it. (laughs) Don't, don't, don't. Don't, don't do this, don't go there, don't go this, don't do this, this. And what this is saying is correction isn't a correction like, ah, smack. No, the correction means to be straight, to be straightened out. It's the, it's the path you're supposed to walk on. You know that God has told you to do some things, right? The Word of God is profitable for that correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Knowing the Scriptures, walking in them, meditating on them, we become prepared for whatever God has in store for us. And so some of you sitting here hear that, 
And what you hear is that somewhere there is a list. A list of things to not do, to do, to, in order to be prepared for whatever it is that God is bringing us. And so, so our rule followers in the room, and I know a bunch of you, you're like, give me the list. That's, that's all. I want that list. That list will make my life so easy because at the end of the day, I can put a big check mark next to I did it or I didn't do it. And I can feel successful. Give me that list. Well, if he gave us a list, you know what would happen? Exactly that. We would sprint towards legalism. We would run as hard as we could to doing the things that are on the list and our hearts would never be changed. And so instead of being a people of a good savior, we'd be a people of a list. And so he hasn't given us that list. If he gave us that list, the people who couldn't measure up would be devastated. And the people who were able to keep that list consistently would be so arrogant, they'd be no fun to hang out with. And so God doesn't give us a list. Instead, what he says is we are made complete. We are made equipped. When we love God with our minds as we do our reading or devotions or our study, because as we do our reading of Scripture, what we find is that the Scripture is a faithful declaration of the nature and the character of God. The Bible tells us about himself. The Bible tells us about Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God. The Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit, who is our, our helper. Someone will preach. The Bible's going to, Bible's from beginning to end, I guess get some water. The Bible from beginning to end, it, it unfolds the law of God. And it shows us how we're all broken and how every single one of us has, has betrayed and rebelled against God. When we read the word of God, we see that Jesus Christ died as a sinless, willing substitute for those who have broken God's law. As we read the word of God, what we find is we need to repent and believe in him in order to be at peace with God. And so, so knowing the scriptures, we get to see how glorious God is, to see how huge he is. How awesome he is. And as we get to know him like that, our sin becomes more and more repugnant to us. Our, our, our struggles, our difficulties become less and less powerful in our lives. It's like that old hymn, that turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And as you gaze at Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim. They don't disappear. They just kind of fade into the background in the light of his glory and his grace. Problem is, we don't do that. And for most of us, it's not the lack of ability or the lack of time. It's simply because we're apathetic. We're either lazy, or we don't have an understanding of how desperate we are for God himself. I'm telling you, the follower of Jesus Christ, if you are not regularly in God's word, you should be scared. Not of God. Do not hear me say you should be scared of God. You should be scared of yourself. You should be scared of Satan's attack on you. Because Satan attacks in very subtle but aggressive ways. And, and in fact, it's funny. I, I think for most of us, he'll attack us in the same way once we come to Christ. And he'll attack us not with this big, overt, nuclear attack. It's, it's the subtle and the small and the behind-the-scenes drip of falsehood that Satan will continue to put into your heart and into your mind. And I think, I think for many of us, what that looks like is this. We, we come to the place where we believe 
that God loved us at our worst. We embrace him for it. And we accept his substitute on our behalf. And we believe that God in that moment has taken us as his own. He has adopted us as his own. And it's this glorious moment, this this amazing moment. But now, and this is that drip of Satan in our lives. But now God looks at us after redeeming us and rescuing us and he looks at us and now he can't stand us. It's like, listen, I I got you, but you are such a mess. You need to go and get cleaned up and then come back at me later. And so our mistake is we believe that lie from Satan that's being dripped into our lives and we, we, we run as fast as we can away from God in our shame and we stop leaning on him and we stop learning from him and instead we start trying to change ourselves because uh, I need to stop getting so angry. I need to fight this porn problem. I need to get over my lust issues. I need to be a, a better daddy. I need to be a, a better wife. I need to stop lying. I need to stop, stop and start, start all this stuff. Because you think, as Satan has told you, that now you are unattractive to God. You think you need to get yourself cleaned up so you're not giving him your worse. And then when you get cleaned up and you go back to him, then he's really going to love you. As you read scripture, what you find is the whole time God is screaming to you, Hey! (laughs) Come here! All that stuff you want to deal with, that's where we're going. But I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm even going to carry you through that. You can't change that on your own. You don't have the strength or the power. God's saying, come to me. And whatever, maybe this helps somebody. It's not when you are at your worst that God finds you unattractive. It's when you think you're at your best. So instead of sipping on the drips of falsehood that Satan continues to send our way, daily drink from the ocean of God's true and infallible and inerrant and sufficient word. And turn your eyes to Jesus, the author and the the finisher of our our faith. Allow the, the world system just to fade into the background as you gaze and fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember truth, truth that comes from God's word, that we have hope. His name's Jesus. And Jesus lived for us. He died for us. He was buried for us. He lives again for us. And that work that he began in us on that day he saved us, the word tells us he'll see it through to completion. May we bathe in that. Father, thank you for this morning. What a crazy morning. <laughs> I thank you that it's not in polish, it's not in performance, it's not in being amazed or being amazing that you work. Father, I thank you that instead you work in our weakness. You work through our weakness. Because at the end of the day, if there's anything helpful or meaningful that came today, it's because of you. So Lord, I pray that each one of us would continue to take you seriously. Lord, would would we look at your word more consistently? Would we study it, let it wash over us, change us, transform us? God, I, I pray that you would simply fill our eyes 
full of who you are and what you've done for us. Because God, it is, it's amazing. But Lord, may we celebrate well the rescue that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen.